Well, welcome to FIA Market Voice Podcast. I'm your host, Walt Lucan, and I am thrilled to have Dan Gorfine as our guest this week. Dan is a founder and CEO of Gattaca Horizons LLC and adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center teaching fintech law policy. He previously served as the CFTC's first chief innovation officer and director of Lab CFTC. And prior to the CFTC, Dan was vice president of external affairs and associate general counsel of On Deck. As a graduate of Brown University, Dan holds a JD from George Washington University and an MA from the Sice School of International Affairs at John Hopkins University. Most importantly, Dan is one of the most innovative and inquisitive minds on the topic of fintech and his potential to revolutionize our industry. I've gotten to know Dan over the years, and it's a real pleasure to have him as a guest today on Market Voice. Welcome, Dan. Well, thank you, Walt. It's great to join you and uh, great to see you again. Yeah, you too. Um, you know, really, we got to know Dan in, in the heyday of, of, of really your service at the CFTC. Many of our viewers and the listeners, um, you did a lot at the CFTC. And amazingly, I, I learned that you're only there two years. It seems like you were there an eternity um, with all the stuff that you did. You know, you were the first to to organize the FinTech conference of the CFTC um, you you held and got uh, in the agreement of innovation with the UK FCA. Um, you were one of the primers on smart contracts came out of the CFTC at that time and also lab CFTC, obviously. But when you look back on your time within the government, what stands out as the achievement you're most proud of? Well, well, yes, we were definitely busy and we were active. Uh, and you've you've mentioned a number of things that we were able to do and accomplish, you know, during my time heading up Lab CFTC. Um, you know, the one thing I'll say before I get to the, the the specific thing I'm most proud of is I think even the list of examples you just read out, you know, they're, they're both externally facing and internally facing, and I think that's really critically important. I think that any type of an innovation office needs to engage with external stakeholders, uh, help to provide clarity and to hear as well from the outside world what's actually happening. Um, but then there's also a, an important responsibility to internalize and share within the agency what you're learning um, in order to help improve understanding and to support the operating divisions. So, you know, I'd say my, my, my overall most proud achievement is helping to establish a bit of a model or a blueprint as to what a fintech innovation office can do. And there have been other you know, excellent efforts that have taken place or continuing to take place at other federal financial regulators. Um, but I think it's establishing that model. But in terms of like a specific item, uh, you know, I remember when Lab CFTC started spending more time with blockchain analytics technologies that can help to trace digital asset transactions. And we were able to actually refer and recommend this to the enforcement division. And the enforcement division was able to procure that type of blockchain analytics support to help them trace certain transactions in order to make individuals whole who had been defrauded in certain digital asset schemes. And I just remember it being something that that left me with a real sense of pride that we were able to directly contribute um, to the activities of the agency in a way that actually benefited individuals and consumers who otherwise had been harmed. Uh, so I'd say that was probably my most proud, uh, um, you know, element of of heading up Lab CFTC. Well, you came from a very innovative culture and a startup culture before coming into the government. You know, the government's not really known for being innovative. You know, they although the CFTC, as you well know, has 
in its mission um, to promote right. responsible innovation. So um, that's important. But what was what was the reaction of the the the, the civil civil staff there that um, may have been there for years? And here comes somebody that wants to promote innovation. Yeah. Um, how do you change the culture of a place like the CFTC to try to get them to think about innovation in their their daily du duties? I think that's a great question. And I think it's really important to come in, and, and especially as somebody coming from the outside, is to make clear that I wasn't a, you know, kind of like a blind adherent and champion of innovation. Like net-net, do I believe that technology and innovation can improve the world? The answer is yes. But also, because I came from industry, you kind of learn, you know, sometimes where where is there puffery? Where is there potential smoke and mirrors? You know, where do you need to really learn what's happening in the marketplace and think about how to apply it smartly in a regulatory context so that you're you're actually supporting not just innovation, but but responsible innovation, innovation that actually benefits markets and end users. So I think coming with that approach and making clear um, that that serving as kind of a resource and a utility to the agency means providing the full range of knowledge. And, and I think if you come that way and make clear that you view your role as supporting the operating divisions, as supporting the functions of an agency, you eventually get that buy-in. Um, and I think that then the agency overall, you know, uh, they, they they appreciate the opportunity to be at the cutting edge, to learn what's going on in the marketplace, what's happening with new technologies, and they do view you as an important partner and a resource. I think you're right, though, Walt. I think the CFTC is unique um, in that it always has had an innovation mindset, and I think you know that applies across the commission. It applies across the staff. They've always been kind of at the cutting edge of where technology meets markets. We saw that with electronic trading decades ago. Um, and I think it's part of the DNA. I mean, I know you you were a part of that as well. And I, I think that lives on. And do you think the lab CFTC, I mean, did you start to see innovative companies coming to you and helping to problem solve? Like, I don't, I'm small. I don't understand how the regulatory environment works. Yeah. Um, tell us a bit about how that would work at the agency and, and how, how companies may have come to you seeking support. Yeah, it's it's a great question. And what's what's really fascinating and what made it really dynamic is there's not a one size fits all answer. And it wasn't just, you know, small entities coming to us. We would also have large incumbents that wanted to do innovative things. Um, and so it varied. But yes, and when you get earlier stage entities that are trying to get a lay of the land, especially, you know, in the digital assets context where there there had been a fair degree of you know ambiguity and questions about which regulatory frameworks apply. Um, we would get those kinds of questions. And that is what drove, you mentioned the primers that we published. And we did, you know, the first one was on virtual currencies. We actually uh, published a second virtual currency supplement uh, or primer. We also did one on uh, on AI and uh, that came out actually shortly after I left uh, Lab CFTC. We did one on smart contracts. Part of the reason for publishing those primers was to be responsive to the questions that we were getting from especially earlier stage entities that, you know, we're trying to be compliant, wanted to understand the general lay of the land. Um, so we were able to provide clarity. And I think that, you know, the primer forces you to put pen to paper, which is an exercise that also forces the agency at, to a certain extent and staff to think about, you know, how to put pen to paper and provide that clarity. Um, so I, I, I think that's a really important exercise. But I will tell you, I think also having an open door to just entertain you know, potentially innovative or novel approaches to certain market activity 
is a really healthy dynamic. Um, and, and I think it, it, it has to happen so that you don't have, you know, regulators kind of stuck in their own silo, disconnected from what's actually happening in the market. And honestly, the pace of innovative change is so great and the pace of adoption of technologies is so great that if regulators aren't part of the conversations early on, they're going to end up behind. And, and, you know, markets move quickly, technologies can be adopted rapidly on the internet, and within a year, you have something that goes from, you know, inception to actually having real impact. So it becomes critically important. How, how has these innovation offices within the government evolved over time? I'm just curious, because I remember the UK yep. started a sandbox at one time, the US under your leadership did as well. Um, I think there were things happening in Singapore and elsewhere. Um, are they looking the same as they were five years ago? Have they evolved in some way that uh, as we've gotten smarter on these topics? It's a good question. I, I think that it's, you know, I don't think that there's a straight line answer to that. I think some agencies have developed these and had more success than others. Um, again, I would say that the key to these being successful is that they have to have as part of the mandate and mission, both the externally facing piece and then that internal piece is critical. If, if the office is not created in a way that helps inform, educate, and promote the day-to-day -day functions of the agency, it will struggle. Um, so, so I think you've seen success. I think globally, you continue to see these innovation offices either grow, be launched, um, again, some with different degrees of success. I think it's inevitable, though that agencies will move down this path. I think there have been concerns that, it, that, you know, there are some that view the notion of sandboxes, for example, to potentially be deregulatory. And there is that risk, right? You could certainly use a sandbox as a way to say, oh, we're going to kind of waive all, you know, criteria and oversight and just let anything fly. I don't think that's going to be a very successful sandbox. Um, but, but creating a space where you have informed, educated people who can actually approach, engage these technologies and innovators, share back learnings collectively. The industry learns, the regulator learns. Um, bring best practices to the regulator. Bring to the attention of, you know, sometimes there are bad things happening in the marketplace that should be brought to the attention of enforcement. If it serves as that kind of a resource to the agency, I think that these become critically important and, quite frankly, the only way agencies are going to keep pace. Well, we're coming up on five years, I think, since you left the the agency. Yeah, I can't believe it's, it's been that long. I know it is amazing. <laughs> um, and you've been busy and still are influencing policymakers and testifying before Congress. Um, so tell us exactly what you're doing now and what is sort of your day job? What's what's the passion that is driving you uh, today? Sure. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, you're right. It's like four and a half years now, um, uh, and that's remarkable. But I've been very busy and, and having a lot of fun. Um, so four and a half years ago, I started Gattaca Horizons, which is a boutique advisory and consulting firm. Uh, we work with companies, we work with trade associations, and we work with venture investors. And this is kind of across the fintech landscape. So it can be payments, it can be lending, digital assets, capital markets activity, um, but also AI and cloud, all of these areas of financial technology, which, which for me um, is, is just fascinating because I keep my foot in the door and all these different areas where technology is having impact. And quite frankly, I think that having that broad perspective helps make me better at all the different uh, areas that I actually apply that. Um, I am also a co-founder of the nonprofit Digital Dollar Project, which as you know, I co-founded along with former chairman uh, Chris Giancarlo from the CFTC and his brother and uh, David Treat um, uh, from Accenture. 
And we now have Jen Lassiter, who serves as our executive director of the nonprofit. And we explore kind of the impact of digitization on money and explore the potential of a digital dollar. I know we'll talk about that a little bit more. You mentioned I'm an adjunct at uh, Georgetown Law, um, but I have to say, Walton, we kind of started offline beforehand. I think my most rewarding activity uh, is coaching my oldest daughter's sixth grade soccer team. And that is probably also my greatest challenge, uh, but it is a blast. Yeah. Well, I, I have three kids. I know you do too. Um, so that's wonderful. And that's, you got to take advantage of those things when you can. It's phenomenal. So, I look forward to the weekends in those games. Very rewarding. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just curious, as you look at all these sort of cutting edge companies, um, you know, we are entering a, f a phase where it used to be blockchain was theoretical and now it's into the practical and AI and other things. Yep. Um, are you seeing any trends? Uh, certainly in our world, uh, the payment and settlement area is of interest given um, you know, the, the, the plumbing, it may be old and can be benefited by some of these new technologies, but where are you seeing some traction in, in some of these fintech companies? Now, I think you just hit the nail on this, uh, on the head when you talk about plumbing and, you know, it's funny when I was even at CFTC and giving some speeches back then, that's the theme I would come back to is that all of the fintech buzzwords of the time really had to do with this underlying like plumbing and infrastructure and the question of, you know, would you design systems differently today than you would have 30 or 40 years ago? You know, given, given new internet, mobile-based and digital technologies, can we maximize access, efficiencies, uh, compliance, you know, reduce cost by using kind of better, more modern tech than a lot of our old kind of legacy systems and approaches? And, you know, one of the other things I, I got for, even during my time at CFTC talking to some legacy institutions is many of them would acknowledge that their internal systems were essentially like scotch taped and bubble gummed together. Uh, they worked, they were fit for purpose. And, you know, it was difficult to think about shifting to a new system once you've already invested in that legacy approach and you knew how to make that work, but it's not ideal. And it's not what you would build on if you were trying to innovate on a go forward basis. Um, so when you say the traction, you know, at, at this stage, I, I find it hard to, to, to believe that any financial services company or capital markets participant can exist without having technology at its core. And that is a major transformation. You know, these businesses today are powered by tech, their systems, their computers, their, um, you know, a lot of what we talk about with blockchain is about interoperability and having systems that can speak to each other quickly and efficiently. So to layer onto that, you know, tokenization, I think, has a lot of potential because it, it creates these bearer instruments effectively that can very easily be transferred from one computer to another, regardless of time, space, and location. And you can do that very efficiently and very quickly and at very low cost. That plumbing, I think, is critically important. Um, you know, then you start building onto this in a world where you have those kind of interoperable systems, you start generating more and more standardized data that's readily accessible by a lot of different actors. And that data is what fuels, you know, one of the other buzzwords that I think no longer is a buzzword, it's become very real, but this idea of AI and being able to apply predictive anal analytics to that data, it's all part of the same underlying, you know, infrastructure plumbing conversation. So, you know, to me, we, we will reach a point in time, I don't know when it will be, but th this term fintech in some ways will cease to be kind of like a separate subject. It will just be that financial services is, is kind of interchangeable with the notion of financial technology. 
it is sort of silly this term fintech like i'm almost it's you know of yeah. course i mean these these banks are technology and these exchanges are technology companies and uh we we shouldn't think of them as a bolt-on topic you know to that's right. who they are they that it's now almost so integrated in their 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 dna i think that's um, right i i think to your that point well i think that they're you know the future like any other space where innovation kind of takes hold you're going to have some upstarts that yeah. kind of cross the rubicon and succeed and go mainstream and then you're going to have some legacy players that recognize the, these changes and they adapt and they're going to be just as you know if not even more competitive and there will be some that fail on both ends of that spectrum because they right. either can't cross the Rubicon or the, the legacy player doesn't see the earth shifting underneath, you know, their, their, their feet. Um, so so that's right, though. I mean, at some point you start asking, like, are they so dissimilar anymore uh, when they really do have to be fundamentally driven by the same types of technologies? Well, you mentioned AI and you recently were asked to testify before the the Senate Banking Committee, I guess it was yeah the Senate Banking Committee last yeah. fall yeah. Um, on the topic of AI. I mean, there's a lot, there's a broad spectrum of views on AI out there. Um, he, as somebody who is steeped in um, both the technology and also the experience of your career, what was your main messaging to the the Banking Committee on how they should be approaching sort of the oversight yeah. and and what we should be looking from a public policy standpoint? Yeah, so I think you know one of my one of my primary messages was that it's a very exciting time. Now I should level set and say like AI, as all the listeners here know, AI and financial services is not new. And I did start with that initial point. Like we've seen, especially in the, again capital markets, financial markets tends to be a place where we see innovation deploy first. But we've had forms of AI and financial services. I think you could argue back into the '80s, right? Now, all that being said, I'm well aware that we're seeing some kind of very monumental leaps potentially in forms of AI. So the conversations around generative AI are fascinating and really important. Um, and I do think will lead to some like breakthrough use cases and applications. You know, so I think number one, I'm excited. It, I know it's a little scary as well, but I do think that from a national policy perspective, we need to lead here. And, and I think the U.S. does have a bit of a first mover advantage. We have some amazing companies. We have amazing minds and, and technologies that we're deploying. But this will be a race. This will be a global race. Um, and so I do think from a policy perspective, you want to be very thoughtful to ensure that policy is fostering continued development and that we're not inadvertently sending messages to chill you know, responsible development. Now, of course, that being said, there will be novel risks that present. I just think we need to be very thoughtful about how we approach new risks. I don't think we should be overly preemptive and premature in trying to box in certain innovation. And I think one of my, my primary argument would be in the financial services context, we have very well established legal and regulatory frameworks that can help guide and govern how you deal with emerging technologies. And it's a little bit of a nuanced argument, but what I suggest here is that we have both investor protection laws, uh, we have consumer protection laws, and we also have robust model risk management frameworks that financial services companies are used to deploying. And that's worked to incorporate technologies over time. I think we should use those same frameworks uh, to be carefully monitoring and studying uh, AI, and as it gets deployed, ensure that they're subject to those same types of principles, things like proper governance, uh, controls, testing, 
those same principles that are very common in a risk management context apply here. So I would want to start there. If there are novel risks that present, we should absolutely be prepared to start addressing them. I just worry about sensational headlines and knee-jerk reactions to say, like, all of a sudden, we, you know, the sky is falling. We need to do something completely new. Um, and that, and I don't think that's even been the message from the financial regulators themselves. For the most part, uh, the financial regulators, and recently there were some headlines, you know, or some of the bank agency heads said we have the proper authorities. We don't need anything new. Um, I've been a little bit concerned the SEC had its predictive data analytics rulemaking uh, proposal, which I am more concerned about because that does seem uh, premature and preemptive and could actually impede uh, further innovation. Um, but for the most part, I think you're hearing uh, the financial regulators say that we do have the right frameworks in place. Well, it's interesting because you know we had the same sort of light bulb moment talking about this that we've actually for years been talking about machine learning and algorithmic trading and we developed right. best practices about a decade ago and when we dusted those off they were a lot of the same concepts you know that can apply to ai um, a lot of the principles-based things that we should be doing uh, just for good governance around that new technology absolutely um, and the cftc has just put out uh, the chairman announced last week that they're going to do a request for comment a request for additional information about ai without any prejudice on what they want to do with it. But I think they're just trying to learn and get up the curve on this a bit. So that's, I think, good news and a good approach. I think that's right. And I think it's important for folks in industry to comment about the processes that they do have in place around, you know, risk mitigation and controls. And I agree. I mean, that's, again, where CFTC markets and you think about uh, algorithmic trading. I mean, this was a big concern a decade ago. And again, there's multiple layers of defense that you impose, but things like circuit breakers, are the types of mitigants and controls that you can put in place that can solve for certain risks or at least mitigate certain risks. Um, and in fact, I see them, you know, kind of just as appropriate today when you talk about things like Gen AI as you did previously. You know, I, one of the, the risk areas here is, is concern about herd behavior if everyone's, you know, adopting or using the same model. Um, I think that's a little bit overblown, to be honest. I think that there's enough variation in the market, and I think there are going to be a lot more actors developing their own kind of native models. Um, so I'm a little skeptical that you're going to see such a, a, a race to like a single model. Um, but, you know, even in those instances, you think about things like circuit breakers to prevent herd behaviors and kind of uh, mitigate some of the risk of volatility that can come from that. No, it's, I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. They're probably going to develop more uh, diverse ways of looking this um, to avoid that type of herd behavior. So that's very right. interesting. Because yeah. investors are always looking for the edge, right? right? I mean, yeah, that's, right. There's I, an incentive yeah, I, to not be pursuing herd behavior. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, another topic that you are an expert on and been asked to testify on is just digital asset regulation. And you mentioned digital dollar, but also just crypto regulation and how we should be approaching digital assets. You know, you, obviously you were at the agency for a long time that has, has jurisdiction over futures on commodities. Uh, the SEC has jurisdiction over securities. But there's an in-between, right, where there currently is not a regulatory landscape for cash digital assets um, that aren't securities. You know, as you look at this landscape, what have you brought forth any sort of thoughts about how to properly regulate this area? 
Yeah, so so well, I have to express this is an area where I am a little frustrated because it's been you know it has been five plus years when I was at the CFTC. We started talking about this. We had opportunity to to testify on this issue, and we pointed out you know five plus years ago that there were a couple of areas where there were some potential gaps or ambiguities, and and like the two big ones which you just named. Uh, you know, number one, there is no spot market oversight of digital commodity transactions. A lot of it is still regulated largely at the state level under state money transmission frameworks, um, which are different than market oversight frameworks. And that was something that we pointed out. Now, look, some states like New York and now California are creating bespoke regimes. But, you know, from a national perspective, uh, we don't have that type of market oversight framework for digital commodities. So that's one area. Um, and then number two, there remains ambiguity in defining when a token is a security or or whether it's being viewed, you know, as a commodity to just be like blunt in the in the binary way that people uh, argue this. Um, so, you know, when I testified, I had an opportunity to point that out again, um, uh, that, that we're still there, you know, a number of years later, still having this debate. Um, I do think that, you know, it's been gaining more bipartisan traction. Uh, I know Chairman Benham has calls for greater authority for the CFTC in the in the spot digital commodity markets. And I believe that that makes good sense. Um, I think that's the right type of market oversight that could benefit the spot markets and provide that clarity. Uh, and then we do need to, it may, may be through the courts that we end up getting greater definitional clarity on when a token is a security versus a commodity. Um, it's also a place that Congress could act. You know, I, I'm to, 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 to kind of map my whole career in the fintech space, I started my interest in this space began back in like 2011, 2012, around the Jobs Act legislation, which created these equity crowd investing uh, exemptions at the SEC. You had, you know, you had Reg CF, which was actually crowd investing. You had Reg A plus, which was the mini IPO exemption. And you know, I continue to think that there is some world where, if you think about tokens and you're worried about this ambiguity, you know, maybe you create a framework where. There is some type of oversight and there is a securities, uh, you can call it an exemption, but of course you still have to file with the SEC in that instance if you're capital raising. Um, but you think about some way to allow uh, projects to develop under regulatory oversight. But if something does develop where the asset, you know, starts to look more like corn, gold or Bitcoin, I should say, you know, then it becomes a commodity and that that may be kind of a construct that could work. It's not rocket science. I think we just have to, you know, have the the, the policy um, uh, strength to move something like that through in this country. Yeah, and I, I don't know if there's the political will right now, um, given the variety of other things that are on the agenda of both agencies. Um, I agree. It should should shouldn't be hard to do once the minds are in alignment. But uh, I'm just curious: is there a competitive issue for the United States if it doesn't develop this? Do you see other nations filling the void? Is, is that a concern of yours if we don't at least in the next couple of years try to address this? Yeah, I, I look, I think it's I think it's a missed opportunity. I think the U.S. is a critical market. So it's you know, I, I, I don't think innovators want to leave the United States per se. But, you know, having a constructive framework allows for, you know, development to continue in a compliant way. It creates confidence in that development and, you know, the direction of travel. Um, you know, so so I could see a lot of benefit in that. And, 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 you know, look, commodities, securities, I think we have to go back to like fundamentals as to why we regulate these differently. 
Yeah, when you talk about the securities laws, a lot of it is about information asymmetries and making sure that information that management uh, teams hold are, is properly you know, deployed out to the public so that it can inform price discovery. And you know, that's how the system works and that makes good sense. Commodities are different. You, you know, when you think about things like corn, gold, wheat, um, no single management team holds that captive information about the value of corn, gold, and wheat. And so we regulate them differently. And you know, the CFTC has specialized in commodities and, and in derivatives markets that are often linked to those commodities. And that's why the US has the most robust dynamic you know, risk transfer hedging markets in the world. So I would love to see clarity so that those same areas can develop in a healthy way. Um, and I do think other jurisdictions are looking at you know, some of the reticence in the US to act. Uh, and they are taking advantage of that. You see in Asia, you see kind of uh, new frameworks coming to, to life and it creates some clarity and certainty for innovators. And again, going back to where we started with all this, uh, the infrastructure of markets, I am a believer. I can't tell you what you know cryptocurrencies are gonna survive in the long term or not, but I do believe that this digitization piece survives. So those with knowledge and first mover advantage with digital wallets and the rails, and that will apply to any kind of tokenized asset or instrument. So you should want to foster and develop that in your home jurisdiction. And where, where do you think we are in the digital asset uh, industry right now? I mean, you know, there is boom bust cycles that happen all the time in a variety of different financial services. Um, but we did, there was a lot of froth in the market and then we, we did have some, some large scandals and FTX and, yeah. and Binance and others. I'm just curious now, what is the state of the the, the crypto um, industry? Are we in a better place? Have we learned some lessons? Did we feel yep. you know those that are left are 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 learning some of the lessons of of some of the scandals and that we're able to move forward in a more productive way? I tend to be an optimist, and I do think from an industry perspective, what you just described is right. Uh, you know, sometimes these things can result in some healthy corrections where, you know, people start focusing again on building actual real world productive applications. Um, so I do think that's important. I think taking compliance seriously is really important. Um, so I do think there have been a lot of positives, you know, from an industry perspective. From a policy regulatory perspective, I think we're still working through it. You know, yeah. quite frankly, the FTX failure uh, resulted in a world where I think many lawmakers uh, think that any action in this space just will further legitimize it. Then uh, that was the takeaway, which I think is unfortunate because that shouldn't be that to me, the takeaway is let's put the right guardrails in place. Let's have the right oversight so this can be done responsibly. And I think the ship has already sailed in terms of like whether digital assets is a thing that's here to stay. We now have Bitcoin ETFs, as you know, um, you know, globally, you're seeing continued adoption. It's been 12 plus years now, is it? Uh, or, well, no, more than that, way more uh, of Bitcoin, right? So whether you know the staying power seems to be there and in a world where you're seeing like increasing percentages of Americans who are participating in this market, I think to say that any action just legitimizes, it's too late for something like that kind of a notion. Instead, you really are creating a world of like pure caveat emptor, which is not ideal from a consumer protection perspective. So I think that to answer the question, I think the industry has learned hopefully some good lessons. Um, I think policymakers are are kind of working through uh, the implications of some of those failures. And I think it will come back to a place where you realize the right way to do this and actually ensure protection is to put some 
pretty common sense, you know, say uh, guardrails in place and make sure you have the right oversight framework. Well, you mentioned earlier your involvement and in your founding of the Digital Dollar Project. And, um, you know, I, I think there is a different points of view among policymakers about, you know, what the United States should do in this area. Uh, recently, I think uh, President Trump or former President Trump announced that he would be against such a proposal. Um, and even the likes of former Fed Governor Randy Quarles has, has suggested some skepticism in this area. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, former chair uh, of the CFTC, Chris Giancarlo, is very supportive of it. Um, give us your best pitch on why this is an important project, why this is good for the government of the United yep. States to move in this direction, um, and for those that may be skeptical. Now, listen, I, let me start with this. I think that concerns are incredibly valid, and concerns about privacy and surveillance of you know, digital fiat currencies are absolutely legitimate. And quite frankly, it's a key driver as to why we think this is such important work for the US to do. So let me just start there. And let me also say you know, another important point here is that regardless of whether the US moves forward with a central bank digital currency, I think it's inevitable that we're gonna see global CBDCs and we're gonna see continued private sector development around digital currencies and stable coins. And those systems, that infrastructure, can raise the same concerns that we're hearing expressed around a US CBDC. Concerns around surveillance, you know, security, um, interoperability, all of those questions are really questions about plumbing. So with that backdrop, my argument, and our argument around why you know, continued exploration and U.S. leadership is so important, is that if you believe that this infrastructure is the way of the future, that we are going to continue to see digitization that will impact all financial assets and instruments, including fiat currencies, then you should be the one who wants to set the standards. You want to write the rule books and lead globally what that rule book looks like for, for these types of assets. Um, and if you don't, I fear that we cede, you know, that development to others and we may end up with some of those concerns becoming realities around privacy. So, you know, the, the good news is most policymakers and most jurisdictions and democratic uh, and, and rule of law abiding countries and jurisdictions are trying to embed and think about embedding things like privacy in the future of money. But I think, you know, the reality is we will hopefully always have cash as an option. And Digital Dollar Project certainly sees this as not antithetical to having cash. But, but, the, but if we think out 50 years, it's very possible that people move away increasingly from cash. We've seen that happening. So then you ask yourself, like, how do retail individuals get access to public money? What form is it going to take? And how do you make sure it's been designed in a way that safeguards privacy norms and interests, prevents you know, improper either public or private sector surveillance. Those are not easy questions, but we should be exploring it and getting it right so that if and when you want to deploy a CBDC or set the standards for other forms of, of, of private money, um, you've done that work. So that's what the Digital Dollar Project is all about. It doesn't call for a US CBDC. We're not saying that we should be issuing one anytime soon. It does mean we should be studying this and make sure we understand trade-offs and be prepared in case the country ever decided to do so, or at least set standards globally for a digital future of money. Dan, I so appreciate you coming on today and informing our listeners of all the fun things that are happening in the fintech space. 
We appreciate your government service when you worked for the CFTC yeah. and all the good things you're doing now. So thanks again for being a part of Market Voice today. Awesome. Well, Walt, and thank you for all the work that you guys do and, and your organization. You're always at the forefront as well. So a privilege to be on with you and uh, look forward to continuing to collaborate. Thanks, Dan. And thanks to our listeners. Uh, stay tuned uh, for further podcasts coming forward. Thank you. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal, or professional advice to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual, or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties, or guarantees as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the podcast content. Reliance on the podcast contents is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special of consequential damages arising out of any use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or its contents. Any commercial use, resale, or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2022 FIA. All rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.